everyone, to the Parent Advocate Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Chikumba. My pronouns are he, him, and his, and I'm joined once again by my partner in crime and co-host, Lisette Trujillo. Hello, everyone. Lisette here, she, her, Aya. Each week, we bring you our take on all things happening in our world from the perspective of two parents of BIPOC transgender kids. It's episode 26, Lisette, and we're going to be interviewing Michaela Cavanaugh, who shut down the Nebraska legislature with a historic filibuster to prevent that body's passage of anti-trans legislation targeting trans youth in the state. Steven, thank you for stepping in and holding it down for this amazing boss, Michaela. Well, let's get into it. Welcome, everybody, once again to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Let's get started. All right, Lisette, give me the rundown. What's been going on with you? Oh, it feels like it's been three weeks in one week, if that makes sense. Daniel came home on Friday and was like, I don't feel good and was sick all weekend. And luckily it wasn't COVID. We all took COVID tests. So we were happy. Jose and I did not get sick. Aunt's funeral was on Tuesday. I gave the eulogy. It was really bittersweet, like, but it was really great. We had family come in from Mexico. So it was great. I say great only in the sense that it was great to connect with family. A reminder of why being connected is important and not just stay connected when uh, we lose the people we love. Let me see. I have to run parent group on Saturday. So I'm excited to see the families and see their kids. I hadn't, I haven't seen them because I was in DC with you last month during our parent group meeting. And so I'm super excited to connect with everyone. I've been working, doing some advocacy stuff, just trying to stay afloat. How about you? Tell me what's going on. What's going on with me? What's going on with me? So the dad's launches in like a week and I've been spreading the word far and wide putting it on my socials texting my friends sending to my family everybody who knows me knows that this movie is launching on Netflix on November 17th and I get a call from my cousin and she's like I want to introduce you to somebody and who is that somebody Dr. David Johns Dr. David Johns sends me an email saying brother I'm in flight but I love what you're doing I love the message that you're sending. What you're doing is so important. I want to hook up with you, but here's just some few thoughts while I'm flying from here to there. We got to get up. Dr. David Johns for the National Black Justice Coalition, just like one of those people who has been doing it for a hot minute. I am so excited to be working with him in the very near future. That is so exciting. Now, Lisa, don't you have a story about David Johns? Oh my gosh. It's because when we were in DC, so I've been following Dr. David Johns and the National Black Justice Coalition for years. And so like when I saw him standing there, it was like, ah. And so I beelined. I think you saw me beeline. We have a mutual friend. I've been following you for years. We need to connect. And so I introduced him to Daniel and we've texted a few times and I can't tell you I die every time. I think it's amazing. I think we need to ask him to be on our podcast. Oh, absolutely. 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 And he's just that dude. He really is like the the unsolicited advice that he gave me. The fact that he's like, listen, we fam a lamb from, from this point forward. Like any fam of Ify is a fan of mine. And so we're like this. He doesn't know it, but we're like this already. So that was that was like part one of what's happened since I saw you last. Part two is just normal mundane life stuff. PTA conferences are coming up. I'm actually 
in Jamaica right now in this episode. And I had to reach out to both Hobbs's and Fuji's teachers to say, hey, I will not be able to attend PTA. However, I mean, parent-teacher conferences. However, I am fully aware of how they are doing academically. And I know because they have the parent portal and I went in, Hobbs has straight A's. Hobbs has like straight A's, straight A's. Just he looks like an A. That's how straight his A's are. So the teacher was like, I mean, his, his, his advisor was like, okay, I get it. I just wanted to make sure you were aware. It's all good. Fu, on the other hand, does not. This child has A's, B's, and a C. And I'm like, this dude, what in the hell? And again, because I'm not going to parent-teacher conferences, I had to go in and look. And he just didn't turn in his homework assignment. And I just saw this, like, this meme about how parents talk to teens about their grades. They're looking on the phone, they're in the portal, and they're like, what happened to your grades? And the kid responds, oh, the teacher just hasn't updated the portal. I've heard that so many times. I was like, come on, stop. I'm young, but I wasn't born yesterday. So they could only see the head tilt when you said that. (laughs) All I know is that he got the talking to, his grades will improve. And typically, like first semester, there's that little slacking, not really paying attention to what's going on. I'm not really on him about his stuff. But as soon as he gets the talk, things improve. So we got the talk. I'm I'm annoyed that I have to give the talk, but he's 13. He's, you know, he's young. He's the the baby. So he has time to like, turn it around, turn that C around. Right. And, and, and at this juncture, it's just, it's just elementary school. It's not really that serious. And so, and he's a good student, but still it was like, "Mm, come on, you're, you're, you're not holding up your end of the bargain kid. And then finally, I've been working with Debbie from P-TECH. She has been working with HRC to develop a guide for parents to launch their transgender kid. And essentially, Hobbs is getting ready to go to college. And so this guide is meant to be kind of a 101 for parents getting ready to send their children off to school. What do you think about? What are the conversations you need to have? What does your teen need to be able to handle for himself? And so because of this effort, I've been having these very candid conversations with Hobbs about like what he's going to do, bank accounts and, you know, moving and all these other things. And one of the things that came up was finding appropriate medical care, because as a trans man, he still has to think about gynecological issues and he has to find a provider who can address gynecological issues of trans men and do it in a affirming fashion. And so having that conversation with him was like kind of mind blowing and like endearing all at the same time, because we can have those conversations. When I started this journey, I didn't think I could have those kind of conversations. I was squeamish. Like I I tell this story about how I was not able to have a conversation about the birds and the bees back in the day, because I just didn't know what to say. Now I understand it's just like talking to any other person about their issues. You just have to be aware that their issues are going to be slightly different, but it's just a nuance. It's not something that I should feel or any parent should feel uncomfortable about. And I was just remarkable marking because of the fact that I've seen the growth as a parent that I've been able to make in this space, knowing once upon a time, I was just ill-prepared to have them. But I think it's it's important because parents need to have these kind of conversations, especially as your children get ready to leave the home and have to do these things for themselves, to be able to advocate for themselves, to be able to say the thing, even when it's going to be uncomfortable, potentially for the people that you're dealing with, and making sure you're finding providers wherever you're going to land that can help you to get that affirming care, treat you with dignity and respect when you go to see them. And of course, at the, you know, the base, get the health needs 
that you have taken care of. I'm so glad you felt comfortable having that conversation because it's so important for us to be able to tell our children how to care for themselves and connect them to the resources that are needed. I'm really glad. That's so wonderful. Congratulations. I thank you. I thank you. I thank you. But Lisette, we've got... Wait, wait, wait. No, 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 no. Wait, wait, wait. You noted on here that you want to talk about, you know, calling people in. Oh, my goodness, Lisette. I don't even know how I almost forgot that. Okay. So the reason I wanted to talk about David Johns was because when I was introduced to him, my cousin asked me to send my bio. And in my bio, I talk about how I felt when my son came out. And in response to me, he said, we don't say coming out. Coming out is very white-centric. That is how they characterize the act of telling people who you are. We say inviting in. And he directed me to an article that he wrote for The Advocate like two or three years ago, where he described this concept of, of, of inviting in. And I loved it. It is so much more wholesome and so much more affirming. And essentially the concept of inviting in is you are allowing people who are into your knowledge of self, into acceptance and seeing of you, as opposed to you suddenly exposing yourself to other people. And the dichotomy between the two, I think is so empowering. It's so much more wholesome. And I just loved that concept of inviting in, and I'm going to be using it everywhere. I'm replacing the description of what a person is doing when they reveal who they are to you as inviting in, and I shall no longer be using that concept of coming out, because I do think that concept is damaging and hurtful in ways that I hadn't processed or thought about, but I can see now that someone's explained it to me. And this is why I love, love, love learning from, um, you know, other advocates living in the intersections, because we're so attuned to language, like what something means, how some, how a certain word makes someone feel. And like, it's because we've been existing, right? In spaces where sometimes we experience microaggressions or discrimination. And so that nuance of language matter. This is amazing. I'm going to start doing the same thing. And when we're done recording, I'm going to create a text thread with the three of us so we can yes. see if he'll be Love on it. our podcast. Love it. Love it. Okay. Lisette, we can keep talking about ourselves, but we have today's topics to get to unless you're going to stop me again. No, no. Let's do it. All right. So Donica Rome, a three-term Virginia lawmaker and former journalist, on Tuesday became the first openly transgender person to be elected to a state Senate seat in the South, winning a competitive race that helped Democrats take control of the Virginia legislature. Tuesday's results were incredible. She is only the second openly transgender candidate in the nation to win a state Senate race. The first being our friend Sarah McBride, who was elected in Delaware in 2020 and is currently running for Congress. We already know that more and more LGBTQIA folks will be running for office. This is just the beginning and I'm so, so excited. Just let me say for the record, I have never been happier about the outcome of an election outside of Warnock and Fetterman. And like that, that one election cycle really made me happy, but it was just because we were just on the precipice of ruin. But this one, I just woke up with just a massive smile on my face on Wednesday because I was just like, ding dong, the witch is dead. And they just have to keep eating that humble pie. And it just keeps getting better and better. Now, 
That's not to say that this trend is going to continue, but every single time we're able to pull a little more away of their power and ability to ruin people's lives, it's a positive day. It's a positive day all around. I mean, it took the dread away from like the upcoming 2024 election cycle. That's for sure. Not all the way away, but enough to make us feel a little more comfortable. Just a little. So in a document approved by Pope Francis, the Vatican declared transgender Catholics can be baptized, become godparents, and be witnesses at Catholic weddings. A notable shift in tone following years of statements made by both Pope Francis and Pope Benedict opposing gender ideology and the recognition of transgender people in the church. While this is seen as progress in the church, Pope Francis has stopped short of welcoming transgender Catholics and has repeatedly made statements criticizing quote-unquote gender ideology. In 2015, Francis said in an interview with Italian journalists for the book Pope Francis, This Economy Kills, that quote-unquote gender theory is incompatible with the order of creation, comparing it to nuclear arms as an example of an unnatural sin against God. He also said in a meeting with Polish bishops in August of 2016 that it is, quote unquote, terrible that children are learning that, once again, quote unquote, everyone can choose their gender in schools, calling it an annihilation of man as image of God. It's just really hard to stomach the way religious people impose that doctrine on the rest of us as if their word is law. Yes. And it's not a choice, right? People are who they are. And so it's always frustrating when you hear, you know, authority figures saying this. And I just want to say, I left the church in 2007. And I truly hope that this statement brings about sincere inclusion and progress for transgender Catholics who are looking to find support in their faith. I left the church like decades ago, and I've never looked back because I find that the church is more exclusionary than it is inclusive. I find that their words are more divisive than bring people together. And I find that oftentimes people couch their discrimination and bias and hatred in religious terms. And I just can't reconcile myself with the words of the Messiah, Jesus, the person who everyone is supposed to model their lives and the conduct of practitioners of the religion. It's just too disparate and I just can't get behind it. And it's great that the Pope is saying what he's saying, but I, I think it's not enough and the damage has already been done. <laughs> I kind of chuckled at all the headlines with like, transgender people can witness weddings. I was like, what? We're all going to be standing around the corner, like secretly walking on Zoom because we can't come into the church. Like, stop it. Just stop. Do better. Do better. So I watched this interview of Mike Tyson on Drink Champs, where they were talking about a conversation that Mike had with Boosie about gay people. And in Mike's retelling of it, his child, who is non-binary, was ready to thump Boosie because of their homophobic stance. The problem with the conversation and what just got me both because he was sincerely trying to rep for his child, but he was misgendering his child at the same time, was his attempts to help people understand that you cannot discriminate against people wholesale 
when you don't know what it is you're talking about. And if you're saying disparaging things about people and the things that you're saying are wrong, then you need to educate yourself so at least we're having a conversation where everybody's on the same footing. And it was remarkable that Mike Tyson, a person who was formerly accused of sexual assault, Mike Tyson, who you would not think would be a champion of the LGBTQ plus community, is in fact the parent of a non-binary child and has seen fit to step into those conversations, albeit with the wrong information and the wrong language, but with the desire to do good. And it just, it made me feel good that he was in the space and he was challenging these assumptions that he stepped to Boosie in the first place to challenge the things he was saying about homosexuals and trans people. There's hope for the world is all I'm saying. It's because our kids, this generation is gonna like, they're forcing a reckoning, right? Like when you said Mike Tyson, I was like, wait a second, Ferrari gifting, White Tiger, Phil Collins singing in the night, Mike Tyson. Like I was like, what is happening? (laughs) And I love, love that. That parents, instead of rejecting and or hiding away or not discussing their children, are showing up in difficult conversations, even when they don't have all the language, to try to teach each other in conversation about the complexities and nuance of gender and sexuality when it comes to our loved ones. Like, this is incredible. We have a long list of parents. We got Sade. Absolutely. There are us who are coming out, who are speaking out, who are being visible, who are really putting themselves in the line of fire for these difficult conversations and pushing back against a lot of the assumptions and misinformation that is out here around gender diverse, non-binary, transgender, gender non-conforming children. I was in a meeting today too, where we were talking about often the conversation around trans youth and their families is one where we center the parents and like how they were feeling. What I'm loving about seeing BIPOC parents talk about their youth, it's like that, again, that inviting into our life, right? Inviting you in and and saying, it's not easy to have these conversations. It's easy to love your child. It's hard to get the whiplash from the people in your sphere, you know? And so it's, Like we were just talking about how that in itself is a part of restorative healing, restorative justice, like parents really doing the right thing and holding our children and like protecting and honoring them through this advocacy work. This is incredible. This makes me, you know, feel like, like we're in some good company. That's amazing. Well, he said we're an amazing company today because the person that we're about to talk to is not only a parent, is not only a parent of multiple children, but is a parent of multiple children who has done exactly what we're saying. She stepped into the breach and defended our children from all that crap that's out there. So let's not keep talking about ourselves and our lives and centering ourselves. Let's center our guests. Let's do it. With us today is Nebraska State Senator Michaela Kavanaugh. Michaela M. Kavanaugh is an American politician serving in the Nebraska legislature from the 6th District and a member of the Democratic Party. A native of Omaha, Nebraska, Michaela has dedicated nearly two years to community affairs and public service. Michaela holds a master's degree in public administration from the University of Nebraska at Omaha and a bachelor's degree in sociology from the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. Michaela is probably best best known for her historic achievement, the longest filibuster in U.S. history, lasting an impressive 60 days. She undertook this remarkable feat to oppose harmful legislation 
targeting transgender youth. A champion for equality, tirelessly working towards a more just and inclusive world for all. Everyone, please welcome Michaela Kavanaugh to our show. Hi. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing so amazingly well. I'm so excited to have you here. Welcome to our show. I'm excited to be here. So, Michaela, I... I, I first need to give you your propers. I know we did it before the show started, but you stood up for trans people in Nebraska. And it's not often that allies are so visible, so vocal, and so willing to literally put it all on the line for other people. So first, I congratulate you and you have my deep thanks. But my first question to you is, what in the hell were you thinking? <laughs> That's a great question. I wasn't. <laughs> I was acting. I wasn't thinking I was taking action. I knew this was coming. I knew that this type of legislation was coming and I knew it was going to be a hard session. And then when it was voted out of the committee that I sit on, I knew that now the real work had to start. And so I really didn't think about it. I just did. And I did what I thought needed to be done, and I would do it again. So the Nebraska legislature is different from other states in that it's it's unicameral, meaning that it's not separated into two houses. It's also nonpartisan and doesn't officially recognize its members' political affiliations. But how does that play out in reality when you do have Republicans, Democrats, and independents pretty much lining up according to those party affiliations? Well, this year it was much more partisan than it's ever been in the past. In Nebraska, things tend to break down more along urban and rural issues and less along political lines. But we uh, have term limits now in Nebraska, which we didn't always have. And so we have a very young legislature that um, not young in age, but young in um, experience in the legislature. And we have a new governor. And so sort of the historical way that the legislature has functioned is, is kind of getting eroded. And so when we used to really not have this sort of toxic legislation on the floor, even a year ago in 2022, before several of my colleagues were term limited out, this a bill like this would never have gotten to the floor of the legislature because the moderates in the body would say, there's no way we're wasting time on something like this. This is going to take up too much time. It's going to be a fight and we've got business to do. But the 2023 legislature felt like this was worth wasting time on. So they did. Yeah, they, they certainly wasted time, but they didn't know they, didn't know they had a real proper official, I can waste time, time waster on their hands now, did they? Well, they should have. I told them. <laughs> yeah, you told them you were going to burn it down. I guess they didn't believe you. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of them believed me, but nobody, nobody cared enough about focusing on issues that are really important, like taxes and housing and healthcare. They just cared about hurting families. And so that's what we focused on. It's interesting you should say that because the Omaha senator who introduced the legislation, Kathleen Koff, said that she brought it to protect 
children in the state. But what do you say to people like Senator Koth, who use this protection of children as the rationale for bringing bills like this? What do you say to people like that who, in my opinion, are clearly disingenuous, but may in fact believe the things they're saying? Well, in addition to attacks on the queer community in our state and across the nation, we are also seeing them attacking, you know, social emotional learning and uh, racial equity in schools through books and curriculum. And we're seeing the same people introducing these bills, restricting parental rights in healthcare, advocating for parental rights in the classroom. And so it clearly is about not that we need to trust parents, but that we need you to be who we want you to be. We need you to do what we want you to do. We need to have control over what your children read, and we need to have control over what medical care your children are getting. And all of it is disingenuous. All of it is based on building fear to build power and to maintain power over people, over voters through fear mongering. And that's always done by alienating the other, alienating the unknown and alienating a minority. And we have seen that in our history over and over and over again. And all this is, is using fear to build power and using it against a minority population to do so in the process. Yeah, it's one of those things where you watch happening and it's just difficult to reconcile and process because of the words that they're using to couch the things that they're doing. When you hear protection of children, when you think of parental rights, you think of things that naturally inure to the benefit of the constituents you're talking about, the children or the parents, when in fact the opposite is actually true. In one, bre- in one breath, they could say they're trying to protect the children. In the next breath, they're taking rights away from the children. In one breath, they can say they're all for parental rights. In the very next breath, they're depriving parents of these rights that they're supposedly upholding. So it's really difficult to listen to and watch their actions when in fact so many contradictory things are happening. Exactly. (laughs) So on May 22nd of this year, LB 574, aka Let Them Grow Act, was signed into law with provisions regarding transgender health care taking effect on October 1st. How did that make you feel seeing the bill that you worked so hard to prevent be signed into law? Oh, it was devastating. It was devastating. (laughs) When it passed, when the votes passed, there's a picture of my colleague, Megan Hunt, in the elevator going up to our offices afterwards, and she's crying. And it was in the New York Magazine. And I was standing, I'm not in the shot, I was standing next to her. And Every time I look at that photo, I feel it all (laughs) again. It was just an awful moment in my life, in so many people's lives, in the history of this state, in the history of this country, to see no matter how far we've come from where we used to be, that we still have the capacity to inflict such pain and harm to people that we don't understand. It was really awful. But on the bright side, I mean, not this isn't the bright side. I I was 
fairly certain that it was going to pass for most of the filibuster. I was fairly certain that it was going to pass. And it really became more than just trying to stop the bill. I knew I couldn't stop the bill. It became about, first of all, showing how ridiculous this was that my colleagues were willing to spend this much time on this issue. And they can point the finger at me all they want. I would have stopped the moment a single one of them told me they wouldn't vote for it. It took one person to tell me they wouldn't vote for it. And no one came and told me that. So 33 people had the power to stop that filibuster and they never used that power for 60 days. They never used that power. And they said that it was me, but it wasn't, it was them. But in addition to that, I did this because it needed to be done. I continued doing it every day. I got up every day because I heard from so many kids across the country. So many kids found me on Twitter and found me on Facebook and Instagram and told me how much this meant to them. And if I could prevent one child from harming themselves because they saw that they mattered enough to have somebody fighting for them, then I would do it a million times over. And that really is how I was able to keep going. Yeah, I I can only imagine the pain of a loss. And it's not like, oh, I lost. It's that so many children are going to be detrimentally impacted by the passage of this law Mm -hmm. and it's being enacted in the state of Nebraska that you just you just feel that visceral pain you just have that emotional response and when you see your colleague broken by that it's it's hard not to relive it but there is a silver lining to this i was reading an article in the wall street journal in which they talked about your filibuster efforts and more importantly they talked about a political action committee that you helped to found with megan hunt and uh, John Fredrickson, I believe, called Don't Legislate Hate, which would specifically support lawmakers who oppose legislation which negatively targets the LGBTQ plus community. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. So many times I said on the floor and Senator Hunt and Senator Fredrickson as well, that this is not who Nebraska is, that Nebraska does not want to legislate hate. That's not what we're about as a state. The people there from 2020, the 2023 session and 2024, this next year, they are a moment in time and they are going to be a blip on the radar. And we cannot exist as though this is the end. We must continue to push forward and know that there is an election in 2024 and there is an election in 2026 and we can fix this. We can change this, but we have to be organized and we have to push forward. So we decided to start this pack and we really hope that we can um, garner financial support to invest in races here in Nebraska to turn the tide. Nebraska is not an expensive state to run a political campaign. And Republicans have been pouring millions of dollars into the state for years. And Democrats have been winning the races that we do win on a shoestring budget. And I won a Republican district when I ran. And so did a couple of my other colleagues won Republican districts. And so 
we want to show people that this nonpartisan legislature can be better than it is right now and that we just need to invest in these races to help push them over the edge. I love that because one of the things that I noted early on, like early on was like when the he who shall not be named was elected president in 2016 <laughs> about how if people were so outraged at the results of these elections, they had a choice. And that choice is to get involved and get involved wherever you can, whether it's running for office yourself, supporting candidates that you believe in, showing up at meetings, calling your senators. Like there are so many different ways in which people can get involved. But as an ally, you've really done the most. You've put your professional reputation, you put your time with your husband and your children, you put your physical health on the line. But for folks who aren't in government or elected office, what can they do? What What are three things that you think allies can do today to help? Well, it's not that easy to answer um, because what everyone can do is different. I did what I could do with the tools available to me. I used the platform that was given to me by the people of my district when they elected me to advocate and stand up for transgender children. And everyone has to dig in and reflect on what they can do with the tools available to them. So that can mean talking to your company about their policy, talking to your company about how they spend their dollars. Um, a lot of organizations give donations to other organizations. What do those organizations support? Are we supporting our LGBTQ community? Are we living the values through our pocketbooks? So that's one way, um, but also money. If you have it, give it. <laughs> Donate to candidates. Um, if you don't, use your other talents. Offer to write postcards for candidates. Offer to make phone calls uh, for getting out the vote, offer to knock doors, whatever is in your capacity to do, do that. If you have the capacity to give $5 a month to a candidate that you really believe in, do that. If you have the capacity to write postcards, do that. If you have the capacity to knock doors, do that. If you have the capacity to volunteer and walk in a parade, I hate walking in parades. So if you have the capacity to walk in a parade and toss out candy and stickers, then do it. It all matters. And every everyone getting involved matters. The worst thing you can do is nothing. So just do something. It doesn't have to be a 60-day filibuster. I did what was available to me. And I like to remind people that at the end of the day, there's nothing special about me. I am a mom of three kids. My kids play soccer. I have a minivan. I literally am the definition of a Midwestern soccer mom. There's nothing unique or special about me. What I did is what my job was. My job is to protect and advocate for vulnerable populations. And I use the tools available to me to do that. And I get that people don't do that. And so that meant something to people. But the reality is we should expect that. I hear you. But, <laughs> you know, I'm pretty sure that that 60-day that filibuster probably ranks pretty high up there 
on the list of the most challenging things you've ever done, probably next to like childbirth. But besides (laughs) that, what do you think has been the most challenging moment for you? And then as a corollary to that, what brings you hope? What outside of the filibuster has been the most challenging? Oh, I think walking off that floor when that vote happened and seeing the faces of the people that I had been advocating for, that was a really hard moment. Yeah, I can imagine. But those same people give me hope because they're still standing. Those kids are still standing. They still exist. They still are loved by their parents. They still are loved by me. And they still have a bright future. It gives me hope that people recognized when I started filibustering that this was important and that this mattered and that we should all be doing something. So as long as we all collectively are getting up and moving forward and not giving up, I have hope. I have a lot of hope. I think that we have a brighter future ahead of us. We just have to go through a really hard time first. That's beautiful. That 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 really is beautiful. And I think it kind of goes to the heart of all struggles. You know, you don't just give up when you don't get what you want or when you lose a battle. You have to keep going. The Parent Advocate Podcast really strives to help parents and caregivers with gender diverse, gender nonconforming, and transgender children to advocate for and on behalf of their children. What piece of advice do you have for parents to help them during these especially challenging times? Oh, gosh. The parents here in Nebraska have been above and beyond amazing. They have shown up for their children in a way that I think most parents can say, I wish I have shown up for my children like you've shown up for your children. They have been there. They have taken off work. They have taken sabbaticals from work. They were there every day waiting to talk to senators, telling their state senators their story. They shared so much of themselves with their elected officials. And it really was awe-inspiring to see. And I know because I witnessed it, <laughs> that it it was really hard for them. And it was really painful. And the fact that it still didn't change the votes was really hard and really painful, but they haven't given up hope. They are still showing up. There were some parents in um, the Capitol yesterday meeting with senators in advance of session next year, trying to convince them not to pass more legislation that will harm their children. But I think the most important thing is to protect your family and protect your peace and whatever that means for you. And Not everyone can show up to the legislature and tell their state senator to their face how much they're hurting them. It's hard to tell people that they're hurting you. So really, the most important thing you can do is take care of your kids. And when you can, when you feel like it, when you're up to it, push your elected officials to be better and to do their job. Because your job is to take care of your your kids at home and their job is to take care of your kids in public policy. Here, here. Well said. So you're still in office. Mm-hmm. You still got to fight the good fight. How can people help you and the causes that you're fighting for? <laughs> Vote. 
vote in 2024, or if you live in Virginia and Ohio, vote right now, but vote. Everyone vote. Apathy is not an option. Being disillusioned about the process, my vote doesn't count. That's why we are where we are, because people stopped voting, because people gave up on the process. We cannot let the loudest, smallest group define us as a country. We have to be loud. We have to be audacious and we have to vote and we have to get other people to vote. And honestly, you don't have to be in love with the candidate. <laughs> I, Democrats always want to be in love with whoever they're voting for. They want them to be perfect. Maybe someday, but right now, just vote for people who aren't going to harm other people. Right. Have that as your baseline. Right. Does it matter if they filibuster for 60 days? No. Does it matter if they would filibuster for one day? No. Will they vote to harm children? No. Great. Vote for them. <laughs> Volunteer for them. <laughs> Get them in office. That's what we need. And I think that's been a big problem is that it's, I mean, politics are personality and likability and you want to be in love and like your elected official. Get over that. <laughs> Let's get over it. I'm not that great. <laughs> if you actually spent time with me. You're selling yourself short. You're selling yourself short, Michaela. Okay. I, have I don't died know. A lot you. of people spent a lot of time listening to me talk. I think they now know <laughs> the real me. <laughs> but again, do they know the real you? Because the real you would not ordinarily talk for 60 days straight that's not the real you that's the you that was forced into a position where you were doing something for other people and i think if the real you is the kind of person who's going to fight for other people with every last sinew and breath in her body okay then i i like the real you i like that person because that person is an uncommon person that's not the kind of person you get every day you get people who are willing to acquiesce and to compromise their values and to compromise their sense of identity and self for others, for that for that minority of people who have the power and the money and the intimidation and all of those other trappings mm -hmm. of white supremacy that people often look to as like, that's what we should emulate. And that's not what it is. That's the opposite of what it is. So I'm, I'll take the Michaela Cavanaugh's of the world every day. You better believe that. <laughs> well, thank you. But right. vote. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I'm going to vote. I'm going to vote. I can't vote in Nebraska. That's like voter fraud. But vote <laughs> <laughs> New Jersey. I'm going to vote in New Jersey. All right. I have one final question for you. All right. This show is, once again, targeted towards families with gender diverse, gender nonconforming, transgender children. Those are the people we hold close to our hearts. If you could say one thing to that group of children, what would you say to them? I would say that they matter, that they are loved, that they are worth fighting for, and that I will never stop fighting for them. Your heart is amazing. <laughs> You're sweet. <laughs> Michaela, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. I will definitely make you one of our recurring guests. And... <laughs> I'm going to make you this promise. The next time we interview you, mm -hmm. 
it'll be the both of us. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. I am so appreciative that you asked me to come on here. And I'm so appreciative that you actually said yes. Now it's time for our recurring segment, Allies and Assholes, where we highlight individuals or groups that are supporting the LGBTQIA community on the one hand and call out straight up assholes who are trying to move us all backwards on the other. Lisette, who are we talking about today? Our ally of the week is ACLU National for asking the Supreme Court to block Tennessee's ban on gender-affirming care. In the petition filed last Wednesday, the ACLU is asking the Supreme Court to review a decision from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit that allowed the Tennessee ban to go into effect. The ACLU is arguing that the state's ban violates the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause and the rights of parents to make medical decisions for their children. If it takes the case, it would be the first time the country's highest court has weighed in on restrictions for gender-affirming care for transgender youth. The ACLU first brought the case out W versus Grimetti against the state of Tennessee this spring on behalf of the families of three minors and a Memphis-based doctor. A federal judge granted those families a preliminary injunction blocking the law in June, but the Sixth Circuit overturned the ruling in September, allowing the ban in Tennessee plus a similar ban in Kentucky to stay in effect. The ACLU has been leading the way to defend LGBTQ rights throughout its history, and I'm here for it. And this is why ACLU National is our ally of the week. Congratulations to ACLU National. Now onto our asshole of the week. Our asshole of the week is U.S. District Judge Roy Altman. In a 39-page order dated Monday, U.S. District Judge Roy Altman said the law, dubbed as the Fairness in Women's Sports Act, and also known as SB 1028, does not violate the Equal Protection Clause of the United States Constitution because its sex-based classifications are substantially related to the state's important interest in promoting women's athletics. The judge said, Today we are asked whether a law that separates public school sports teams by biological sex violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. The appointee of former President Donald Trump said, We find that it does not. The judge continued, The judge went on to say, The plaintiff was right to say that the statute treats transgender girls differently from both cisgender girls and transgender boys. Under the law, after all, biological females, whether cis or trans, can play on both girls and boys sports teams. Transgender girls, by contrast, considered male by birth, cannot play on girls sports teams. I will say this time and time again. Equal access to sports is essential for our transgender youth. This is such a disappointing ruling, Stephen. And that's why... Judge Roy Altman is our asshole of the week. Well, that's our show for today, folks. I'd like to thank our guest, Michaela Kavanaugh, for joining us today. And of course, I want to thank my co-host, Lisette Trujillo, for always bringing the heat and having my back on these airwaves. Thank you, Stephen. You know I always got you. I couldn't handle life without you sometimes because it gets busy and I just appreciate you all the time. And we couldn't do this show without the rest of you, our listeners. And folks, please be sure to like, subscribe, follow, and do all the things you've got to to stay up to date with everything going on here at the Parent Advocate Podcast. Goodbye. Goodbye. If you're thinking about harming yourself, get immediate support. Please reach out to the Trevor Project and connect to a crisis counselor 24 7, 365 days a year from anywhere in the United States. It's 100% confidential and 100% free. 
you can get help at thetrevorproject.org. If you'd like to support any of the organizations working actively to support LGBTQ people, please visit the ACLU at action.aclu.org or the Human Rights Campaign at hrc.org. You've been listening to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Tune in again for another episode.